What would it mean if today you found out that Jesus Christ was not God? What would that mean philosophically, biblically, theologically? More importantly, what would that mean personally? We talked about this in the youth group, and I was encouraged by many of the responses. They said, I would be utterly depressed. What would be the point of life? The deity of Christ means everything. Let me ask you a second question. If someone walked up to you on the street and handed you a Bible and said, prove to me from the scripture that Jesus is deity, that he is God, could you do it? Could you think of one verse? Maybe two, three? Could you make a compelling argument from the scripture that Jesus is God? I don't mean to impose any guilt, but if the Spirit of God uh, would convict that we should seek God in this way, let me just present to you a scripture. 1 Peter chapter 3, 15 says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. If the deity of Christ is our everything, if it crumbles, we ought to be sharp on it. We ought to be able to make a defense. Why else is this so important? Just a couple chapters later, and, and Sean even preached on this last week. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And you better believe that if Satan gets the opportunity to attack one of your beliefs is going to be the deity of Christ. If he can just get a tiny little fracture of doubt in there and wedge his way in, the whole thing can come crumbling down. We need to be diligent. The scripture also says clearly that false teachers will come. That is a promise. Second Peter 2.1 says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master, who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Jesus himself, in Matthew 24.24, 24, said, False Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead if possible, even the elect. That is us. Second Peter 3:15 through 18. Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. False teachers will come, and we are all susceptible to deception and need to be diligent to understand what the Scripture says about who the Son of God is. Even more personally to me, uh, Rachel and I had the opportunity and the pleasure to spend uh, over three months, a semester study abroad in Israel. 
the college put, that we went to put on uh, a program called Israel Bible Extension, IBEX. And the founding professor who had taught there for 25 years, who we came to know very well, not only was he uh, giving lectures to us um, and teaching this very topic to us, but we would go out into the country on field trips, on hikes. We would eat meals with this man. Uh, and we shared the love of Christ together. But recently, he has denied the deity of Christ, saying that Jesus is just a man. And if a man like him is susceptible to deception, we too must be on guard with all diligence. And I'll be the first to admit, I don't see every piece of truth that exists in the scripture the first time around. By God's grace, we trust that he'll reveal it to us. And as an example here, technically Moses was the first person to be downloading data from the cloud. So I don't know. I did, definitely didn't see that one. Um, but, you know, it must be there. <laughs> so we're going to talk about the deity of Christ today. And I don't want to miss what the author of Hebrews chapter 1 has to say. So please open there with me. And I think that this is one of the clearest and emphatic statements about the Son of God in all of the Scripture. Perhaps only the book of John has such an exalted view of the, the person of Christ. So the audience, these are Jesus-believing Jews. They're also Jews who uh, were traditional Old Testament Jews. But they were undergoing difficult times. And as time went on, they began to ask, under difficult situations, you know, was this Jesus really our Savior? Why are we suffering? He was supposed to bring the kingdom. He was supposed to rule. Um, and doubt crept in. Who is Jesus? And the author of Hebrews uses rhetorical power and artistry to paint a high and lofty picture of Jesus as the Son of God, to encourage his readers to live with endurance and holy living. This book, the book of Hebrews, is about Jesus. And what I want to say today, that this whole message can be summed up in this, that from the scripture, you see clearly Jesus is God. And not only that you affirm that, but that it moves you to love him more deeply. Let me say that again. That from the scripture, you see clearly Jesus is God. And it compels you to love Jesus, more fully and deeply. So in Hebrews chapter 1, we'll read through it here shortly. There's three points, just give you a quick road map. Number one, God spoke in his son. Two, he paints this beautiful picture of the preeminence of the son, the superiority of the son. And lastly, the main focus, the son is infinitely superior to the angels. Let's read it together. Hebrews 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification of, for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, have becoming as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. 
For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment will be changed, but you are the same and your years have no end. And to which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? What a passage. So first, God has spoken in his son. Sometimes we say, God, I wish you would speak to me. I wish I could hear your voice. And this comes as a gentle rebuke, this text, because God has spoken, and he's spoken over and over and over. He spoke through the the prophets in the Old Testament, through parables, through visions, through prophecies. Isaiah would speak of the glory of God. Ezekiel spoke of, or Isaiah would speak of the holiness of God. Ezekiel would speak of the glory of God. And Jeremiah spoke of the power of God. And yet, God has spoken through his Son. And Jesus, in fact, was the very revelation of God's glory, his holiness, and his power. And this phrase, the last days, that's something the Old Testament writers would use over and over, and the Jews would understand that this was the time when the Messiah would come and usher in his kingdom and salvation. It is not a time that negates the old, but fulfills it. So Jesus has come ushering in an era of fulfillment. That Jesus, as the spoken word of God, has come and is fully, decisively, and perfectly, finally, the word of God. We come to the preeminence of the sun. This is a great text. It comes with the idea that the sun is the end, the beginning, and the middle of all things. And that he is the heir, he is the creator, he is the sustainer, and he is the purifier. And something I'll just note kind of as an aside because I think it's actually here, is that the author of Hebrews would know and expect, like all the Israelites, that the Messiah was to be prophet, priest, and king which is clearly here. He's spoken, he's going to inherit a throne, and he's going to make purification of sins. Prophet, priest, king. So there's also this structure that you can see here. It's called a chiasm. And before you get checked out, it's just a literary structure. It's like a sandwich. Okay, you don't go to Subway and order a whole wheat sandwich. A sandwich is defined by what's in the middle. It's the meat. You order a turkey sandwich on whole wheat. So this is to say, it's got these these, um, paralleling ideals that come to a central emphasis, which is the relationship of the Son to the Father. So you can, it's important to, typically I would skip over something like this, but it makes sense of the order. It says that he is an heir first and then a creator. Why would he do that? 
The order is an answer to that question. This structure is an answer to that question. But even more, you know, nobody reads the last page or the ending, last chapter of a book first. You enjoy the suspense. Unless you're my wife. She likes to, I don't, I don't understand that. She likes to read the end of the book. I'm like, okay, another couple of you. Good. <laughs> I can't do it. I like the suspense. But in life, we need to know the end. God gives us the end as an encouragement to us so that we have security and hope. You can't see the glory of the inheritance of the Son apart from your own. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. John Trapp said this, Be married to this heir and have all. Consider the all-encompassing nature of this statement. What would fall outside of Jesus' inheritance? There's nothing. It includes the world, it includes the heavens, it includes the universe, Jesus. There's nothing that will fall outside of Jesus' dominion. And he is the rightful heir, not only because he's a son, but because of his redeeming work on the cross. He has the right to be this heir. And secondly, he's also instrumental in making all things. That through whom also he made the world. And this word world is not what we typically see in the Greek. You expect it to be cosmos, which just means the physical earth. But it is the word aeonos, which has with it the word world, the meaning world. But it's, it's larger than that. It has the, the connotation of the age, forever. There's an eternal nature. It's as if God, or through Jesus, created the concepts in which the material could exist. It's as if Jesus spread his hand and pulled into existence the very concepts of physics and matter and space and time. This is Jesus. This is said of the Son. It's more than out of thin air. It's ex nihilo. He made this out of nothingness. What power. Jesus was not just a man from Galilee. He wasn't just the son of a carpenter, familiar with woodworking, stone masonry, but he was the one who fashioned the molecules and the mountains, the sand and the stars, the moon and the Milky Way. Surely a creator with such power could give confidence and assurance to a suffering and wavering believer. That is true for the audience of this book. That is true for Crossway. So we come to this central idea uh, where it says, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. This is talking about the relationship of the son to the father. There's the idea here of oneness and also distinction. So let's start with the second piece. He is the exact representation of his nature. Some will use this to say that, you know, Jesus was just created after God, that he's just a, a copy that came after. You might be able to make that case if it didn't say the word exact, and they use this kind of logic. The word representation or imprint here has to do with the etymology or word origin of, you know, a seal pressed into wax leaves an imprint. Or a coin mint creates the exact image of the coin, the mint onto the coin. So they say, well, this just means replication. 
But I say, okay. But let's look at the context here. And he is the radiance of his glory. How do you separate sunlight from the sun, S-U-N? The brightness of the sun to the sun. They're one and the same. One is emanating from the other. They are of the same very nature, though there is slight distinction. Let other scripture uh, illuminate this passage. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. This has more to do with Jesus becoming a man. No one has seen God, but Jesus came so that we might see God. Colossians 2.9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. John 14.9 says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. There is absolute unity in this statement. That Jesus is the overflowing radiance of the glory of God. He is exactly what you would see in God. If you want to see God, you look to Christ. This is the exalted Savior that that we might know our God. God has spoken. He has not remained absent. He has sent his very Son so that we might know and that we might see him. And he continues here and he says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. You know, we depend not only uh, on Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, but also to hold our very molecules together. If the sun, or if the earth were any closer to the sun, we would burn up. If the earth were any further, we would freeze. If it rotated any slower, we would alternately burn and freeze. Jesus holds this together in perfect balance. Isn't it interesting to think that, you know, the one who created, you know, the human birth went through that same channel? That is a mystery. And that while Jesus, while he was on the earth, walking through the dusty, seat, the dusty streets of Jerusalem, was simultaneously making sure that the planets were keeping their proper orbit. What kind of power is that? That is amazing. And equally as amazing, it says, when he had made purification of sins, he had sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What a statement. Think of the impossibility of this. What could man do to make purification of sins? The Israelites sacrificed thousands and thousands, even millions of goats and lambs and bulls, and it was never enough. There was never an end to human work. Priests would stand constantly. You would never see a seat in the temple or the tabernacle because their work was never finished. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected all time those who are sanctified. To Telestai, it is finished. The purifying and saving work of sins is finished. Think about this. It says that he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If you are continually being made more and more in the likeness 
of Jesus. This passage is saying that you are already perfect. Jesus has already perfected and purified your sins. And that is why he's at the right hand of God, which is a seat of power and glory and honor because he has made purification of sins. He's the creator. He's the heir of all things. He is the exact image and radiance and glory of God the Father himself. You can just see the struggle here that this author has. He's flexing every linguistic muscle. He's he's summoning every fiber in his being to try and articulate the glory of Christ to encourage his readers. How could you possibly articulate with a finite language the infinite creator? There is mystery here that we will not know until he comes again and we see him as he is and are made like he is, as it says in 1 John 3. So as he struggles, he then turns to the Old Testament and says, well, you know, I'll quote some other really smart guys uh, and see if they can help me out here to explain how the Son is infinitely better than the angels. So Philippians 2.9 says, For this reason also God highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the same name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Many refer to this passage as the string of pearls. There are seven direct quotes of the Old Testament in this passage, six of which come from Psalms, one comes from 2 Samuel. And I want to make really clear that our belief in the Trinity is not a fourth century doctrine. The doctrine of the deity of Christ originates in the Old Testament and is clarified in the New. And what was spoken and confirmed in the 4th century is just an echo and a confirmation of what's in Scripture. I hope that is very clear from this passage. I'll tell you a story. On that same trip to Israel, we were in the old city, and we were at a, a, a friend's store. He would often invite us in, give us drinks, refreshment, it was hot over there. And we met these two gentlemen who were shopping in his store, and we were talking, and they come to find out we're Christians. They say, oh, we're Mormon. You know what? Do you know why uh, Christians uh, say that Mormonism is a cult? And I'm kind of thinking, is he, does he actually want me to answer this? Like, <laughs> and so I kind of I say, like, well, do you want me to answer? He's like, yeah, go ahead. And I'm like, all right, slow pitch. No, we're getting ready to smack this thing uh, because Jesus is not the almighty God. You add to the scripture with the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith is an unnecessary blasphemous prophet. Like, what else do you want me to say? He's like, no, no, no. And I'm like, yes, yes, yes. But he says, it's because we don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. He says, nowhere in the Bible do you see the word Trinity. In fact, it's just a historical doctrine. In the Nicene Creed, 325 A.D., hundreds of years after the New Testament is written, I say, okay, well, first of all, they kind of give us a little pause here and then walk out the door. I'm like, okay, great. Didn't even give me a time to respond to this here. But, um, and I just stewed in my bed that night. I was so frustrated. I wish I could talk to those guys again. But let me just say a couple things. Just because the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible doesn't mean the reality does not exist in the Bible. 
The same is true for the word, the doctrinal ideas of superlapsarianism or infralapsarianism. Wow, these are really hard. Infralapsarianism, there we go. Just because those words don't appear in the Bible does not mean the reality does not appear in the Bible. And to get the history right, 325 AD was just when they kind of initiated this idea of the Trinity. They didn't quite get it right. It wasn't until 381, until Athanasius, um, they're there talking about the deity of Christ, and they say, do you maintain that Jesus is deity? And he says, yes, I do. He says, do you realize that the world is against you? And Athanasius says, then I am against the world. We have that kind of faith and response to that. So the point is, the Trinity is biblical. It's not a history made up doctrine. So he's quoting here in Hebrews, Old Testament. Read you a quote here. The author is not just alluding to snippets of text and isolated vocabulary for rhetorical color. But by alluding to these texts, which belong to a larger matrix of ideas, he is evoking the entire context of Israel's story and experience. So what does that mean? We do the same thing with movies. Oftentimes, the first scene in the movie is the most important one, and you can't really understand the end of the movie if you don't have the full context. That's kind of the idea that the author of Hebrews is picking up on these scenes of the Old Testament that they have seen and would understand and using all the, that expression and context to build his case. So, number one, Jesus is God's son. I'm going to turn to um, Psalm chapter 2 here. This is a text having to do with the crowning of God's son, not the creating. Uh, opposing viewpoints will say, Um, you know, the word begotten. There it is. He was made a son. He wasn't there in the beginning. Let's read Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Before Jesus came into the earth, he was there with the Father, the anointed. Skipping down to verse 6. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And in case there's any doubt about what this word begotten means, the New Testament clarifies it in Acts 13. God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus. There it is, a resurrection. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Begotten is not creating. It is an acclamation, this is my son. At the resurrection, that is the specific time. So the author of Hebrews continues and says, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. That's a direct quote from 2 Samuel 7, which is the Davidic covenant. And some would even say, The Davidic covenant is the most important covenant in all the Bible because without it, you don't get the new covenant. It's a true statement. Because in this covenant, God promises to David that he will always have a son on the throne and that beyond that, he will one day put his own son, God's own son, on that throne. Which is why both Matthew and Luke have a genealogy connecting Jesus' physical lineage to David and even beyond back to Adam. 
That's why that's there. It all ties together. And in case, again, there's any doubt about what this means, Romans 1, 3-4 says, Concerning God's Son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus was not one Son among many. We all know John 3.16, the only begotten Son. But those who would oppose the deity of Christ would say something like, the Son of God does not imply deity. And they'll use verses like Psalm 82.6, you are gods and all of you are the sons of the Most High. But I want to make the case to you and make it very clear that the title Son of God carries equal weight to the title Messiah. I'll prove it to you. Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, that word means Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. There they are, side by side, Christ, son. Luke 4, 41, demons also were coming out of many, shouting, you are the son of God. But rebuking them, Jesus would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. We see here from Psalm 2, 2 Samuel 7, here in the New Testament passages, the title Son of God carries equal weight with the title of Messiah. But they will say, okay, well, he might be a special son, but that doesn't imply deity. And I say, oh, doesn't it? Let me ask you a question. Is it enough to affirm, like my former uh, professor Bill, is it enough to affirm that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the Messiah, that he's your Lord, and yet not God? Is that enough? I will make the case to you that the title Son of God does imply deity, and in fact, one step further, you need to believe that Jesus is God to have salvation. 1 John 5.16 says, For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing things on these, these things on the Sabbath, which was healing cripples. But he answered them, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. So there's the relationship, Father-Son. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. They advanced from persecution to killing. That's a big jump. Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Title sonship does clearly imply deity. Look at that in, in contra, or comparison with John twenty thirty one. But these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. There it is. To have life in the Son of God, which means he is deity, you need to believe in the deity of Christ. Just in case that isn't clear enough. Matthew 22, 41 through 46 says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And they couldn't answer him. 
there's a strong implication there that the word Lord means God. Romans 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, you need to believe Jesus is Lord, is God, because believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, by that you will be saved. So my conclusion is that you not only need to believe that Jesus is God, but in order to have salvation, you need to believe that Jesus is God. This is a huge watershed in the world. It's a dividing line. Let me say this too, that if you are going to maintain that the Son of God is just a man and also claim that you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, you are just flat out contradicting yourself because it is explicitly clear here that Jesus is God. And if you're going to still maintain that you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and that Jesus is not God, then I ask you, by what authority do you say that Jesus is God? Because you've moved to the unstable ground of man's rationalism and saying, well, I picked this text or that text or, you know, this or that or the other. We're not even talking about the revelation of God anymore, if that's the way you look at the Scripture. To believe the Scripture is to believe Jesus is God. So coming back to Hebrews um, chapter 1. I don't necessarily see here the explicit um, reference that he says the Son of God is deity, but it's implied, and the author of Hebrews absolutely believes that. But in case it's not clear, he moves on. And in verse 6, he quotes Psalm 97. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. So this, again, is a line in the sand that distinguishes Christians from any other worldview that exists, that if you worship Jesus. Let me ask us, Crossway, are we distinctly Christian? Do we worship Jesus Christ? Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. So any careful reader is going to say, well, are you, are you implying here, author of Hebrews, that Jesus is God? And we come to verse um, 8. Well, let me read verse 7 really quick. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That is just simply to say that angels, in comparison to Jesus, just do God's bidding. They're servants. So verse 8, but of the Son, he says, your throne. Now pay attention here. This is of the Son, he says, your throne. What are the next two words? O God. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Just turn over really quick to Psalm 45 because I really want you to see this. This psalm is directed to a king. Reading in verse 1, Psalm 45, My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Skip down to verse 6. Okay, I was really slow. This took me a while to get, so I'll just, let's break this down. Verse 6. Let's assume that he switched from the subject of this, this psalm to from the king to God. So, verse 6. Your throne, O God the Father, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God the Father, your God, 
That doesn't make any sense. So the only other option, going back to verse 6, your throne, O God, King, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God. That makes sense. Therefore, God, King, your God, the Father, has anointed you. This is clearly making the case. If there is any shadow of a doubt that sonship is equality with God, if, that we need to worship the Son of God, clearly he makes the case here that Jesus is, in fact, deity from the Old Testament. So he is also creator. Verse 10, And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all become like an old garment, like a mantle. You will roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will remain forever. So let me just, there's, there's some uh, hikers here in Crossway. We even have, I think there's a Facebook page for, the, for you, you hikers, which is awesome. I need to get out there while the good weather's coming. Think about this. You hike Mount Pilchuck locally, Mount Sai. What kind of effort would it take for you to be ready to hike Mount Rainier? It's 14,000 feet, less than half of Mount Everest, 29,000 feet. Did you know that this year, just over 50% of people who attempt to summit Mount Everest even do it? These are world-class athletes at a 50% rate. And only 4,000 people have ever made it to the top. And in a single breath, Jesus himself created every single atom on Mount Everest. If that's not enough, here's an interesting analogy. If a beam of light were like a string, just pretend, and you're going to catch this string, it's going to land in your hand. In one second, 186 1,000 miles. I did not misspeak. More miles than are on my 13-year-old car. 186,000 would land and just demolish you, land on you. That's how fast the speed of light moves. 186,000 miles per second. It takes five hours for light to travel between the sun and Pluto, which is minuscule in the size of the universe. The distance between the sun and the North Star is 433 light years. We are getting beyond the grasp of our comprehension. And this is the finite trying to understand the finite. Imagine trying to understand the infinite. One more, this is really cool. One million Earths can fit inside the sun. There's a star named Eta Carinae that is over five million times larger than our sun. That means five trillion of our Earths could fit inside this star. That is just absolutely insane. So we, we're struggling to grasp this, right? So let me say this in a really like, interesting way that maybe we can kind of get our brains around. You spend more physical energy and creative thought brushing your teeth in the morning than Jesus Christ did creating this Earth. You want to talk about creative power. This is the Son of God. And you know what? It says here that one day he's going to roll these up like an old pair of jeans with knee, holes in the knees and throw them away. He's going to make new and better ones. That is amazing. This is our God. 
So lastly here, he's exalted to the right hand of the Father. He says, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The answer to that question is no angel. He's never said that to any angel. They would never receive the invitation to sit down because like the priests, their work was never done. But Jesus earned the right to sit at the right hand of the Father because he's the Son, but also because he is the Savior. And like we read earlier, he made purification for sins decisively. It is finished. It's as if it's this picture of a, of a king sending his son to battle. And when his son returns victorious, he acclaims him, This is my son. Come, enter, sit at my right hand, the seat of honor. I bestow upon you my glory. This is the Son of God who is to sit at the right hand. So in review of these things, Jesus is the beginning. He's the end. Revelation 1, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus says that. John 8, he says, before Abraham was, I am. That is God's name from the episode with Moses at the burning bush. That's either crazy blasphemous or absolutely true. He's the son of God. He's worshiped by angels. He's the God king. He's the creator in the beginning and he's seated on the throne at the right hand of God and the father now. This is our God. So I ask you this question, so what? Do we just affirm this this truth and move on with our lives? Well, he answers that question. He expects it. Hebrews 2 Verse 1, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word which was spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We must be absolutely diligent to understand what is being said here. So I'm going to go out on a limb. That's where the fruit is after all. This might be bold, but I think it's necessary, and I say it with a hopeful heart. That if you read Hebrews chapter 1 and have a basic comprehension of what is said about Jesus Christ, and you are not moved to worship Jesus Christ, one of two things is true. You either have an apathetic view of Jesus Christ and are in danger of falling away from him, or the Spirit of God is not in you at all. Let me say that again. If you read Hebrews chapter 1 and what it says and have a basic understanding of what it says about Jesus Christ and are not compelled to worship him, you are either in danger of walking away from him or the Spirit of God is not in you at all. But there's hope. Romans 2, 4 says, the kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. In either case, God is ready and willing, no matter what you've done, who you are, what your history is, to receive you and lavish you in grace and mercy. God longs for that. So let me say it another way. If you are a child of God, in reading Hebrews chapter 1, the Spirit of God is going to provoke your spirit to worship Jesus Christ. Sometimes we treat the deity of Christ in this doctrine like we would see it on a doctrinal statement at a church. We go down the list and we check it off. 
you know, we move on with our lives. Yeah, I already believe that. I believe I have salvation. But the scripture, God himself has spoken so that you would worship the deity, the son of God. Scripture compels us not only to assent, to say, I believe that, but I worship that. Salvation comprises of three things. I'll, I'll close with this. Knowledge, assent, trust. You can know the basic understanding of the gospel, understand the facts. You can say, yes, I believe that, and not be saved. Even the demons believe and shudder. You must trust the Son with everything, your life. So I ask you, if you believe that Jesus is the creator, do you trust that he's going to carry you through your present trial? Financial, your marriage, your work, whatever the case. Do you trust the power of this creator? If you believe that Jesus is the purifier of sins, do you trust that he's already forgiven the sin that you're committing today, that you'll commit tomorrow, that you've already been made perfect? Do you trust Jesus as your savior of your sins? If you believe Jesus is the heir of all things, do you worry? Because your future is inextricably linked with the future of Jesus' glory. And whatever suffering you face today, I'm not minimizing it at all. But we can say with confidence that the suffering, like Romans 8, we can say with, with confidence, the suffering we face today, as bad as it may be, is not even worth comparing with the glory we will receive. We, will, we are heirs with Christ. Do you trust Jesus? And lastly, do you love? Do you love Jesus? When you think of the Son of God, do you cherish this person? Do you seek his face? Or do you seek his hand? When you think of heaven, do you long and do you ache for that moment when you walk through those heavenly gates and embrace the Son of God for the first time? Can you imagine that moment? This is our God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And he is our creator. He's the heir of all things. He's the purifier of all things, and he's the sustainer of all things. Let us all now worship him. Dear Lord, you have spoken clearly in your word through the prophets and in these last days in your son. May we all not only be compelled to, to say with an amen, yes, I believe that Jesus is in fact God and that I need him for every moment of my life, but also may we be compelled by the power of your spirit to love him and trust him more every moment. We love you. We worship you. It's in Jesus Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.